Okay, I'm not excited. You are listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's funny, sad, and some uncomfortable climbing. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. Welcome back to season five of For the Love of Climbing. Yes, I shamelessly asked Alex Honnold to intro our 37th episode. And no, your podcast app isn't broken. We've been on a break for the last three months, so don't panic and we miss you too. We've been busy working on new episodes because we are officially backlogged through 2027 and that's a good feeling. We've also been busy putting on international film festivals, climbing in Greece, and finally feeling like we're in the most we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone's space. I'm in North Carolina about one week out from what could be the hardest thing I'll ever try. But I actually think that trying to bust this episode out during a huge recon mission might be harder. Angela told me that life is for the living. And, well, now I'm a runner. It's weird. But for the first time in a long time, I feel like I'm thriving a little. No, a lot. It's been hard to shake off two-ish years of the pandemic and all of the hard things that came with it. Whatever trials and tribulations you had to go through in order to get here, this is your reminder that you're here now. And as fucked up and annoying as it was that those things happened in the first place, it helped us get from one place to hopefully a better one. That's gotta be worth something. Okay, actually, here's the show. This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Okun? No. Okun? No. Okun? Really? Okun? No. Who is Otsun? 
More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber, and Amazon. Pam didn't have a lot of tragedy in her life, so she didn't know about the Ark. And as a grieving person, it was hard to look forward to anything, especially on top of the pandemic. But the world started opening up again, and she and her husband Jim rode 1,300 miles self-supported from the coast of Oregon to Montana last summer. When Jim started not feeling well, they decided to return home to California. And it was almost like she had a little bump, so she was devastated when they had to come back. It felt dark and isolated, and Pam realized she didn't totally have it nailed. Pam knows about the Ark now. She knows that she has to build a future with things to look forward to. And it might be like this for the rest of her life. So she takes the good when she receives it and doesn't expect it to last. But when she's stuck in a moment, she recognizes that it's only a moment and to hold fast, that all storms pass. Yeah, I, I think that since losing Brad, riding my bike feels different, especially if I'm in a beautiful place because it always makes me think of Brad. You know, I told you earlier, I was like devastated when we had to leave the ride. And part of that for me was that I felt so close to God and nature and in a way Brad and um, this is going to sound kind of funny. I mean, my good Christian friends are going to be like rolling their eyes like I don't have it right. But when I think of God now, it's like Brad's right there. I don't know. <laughs> Almost like, you know, they're in cahoots, you know, and, and like he's going, yeah, make it rain after they stop God. You know, it almost... <laughs> And I think he would be so proud of us too. I think that's the thing too. It's like motivating to want to do right by him now that he's gone and living our best life as best as we can and not be too caught up in our grief. And um, I've actually had this thought several times that if he could see me now, he'd be so upset, you know? He just wouldn't want to see me like this. And uh, yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll share with you that I had... I've had like six dreams about him. And the most recent one I had, we were at his sister's house and I walked out into the backyard and he came over and he gave me a hug. And he said, mom, I'm sorry I didn't hug you more. And I woke up from that dream and I thought, we're, we're, we're not gonna swear on the podcast, right? Oh, uh, I can swear, okay. Yeah. I was like, I was like, you know, if he were here, he would hug me more. If he could see what I've fucking been through this last year and a half, he would be hugging me more. Like, he would not want to have us suffer like this. I know that. So I try to remind myself, I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense because certainly I know he never expected to die and leave us. And yeah, he would be shocked. He would be shocked at what it's done to us, our whole family even the whole world. Like I have a little like selfish perspective because he died in November and then the pandemic came in March. I was like, oh my God, my son died and the world fucking stopped. It literally stopped. This morning, tragedy striking one of the world's most accomplished free solo climbers. 31-year-old Brad Gobright killed after falling nearly 1,000 feet from a climbing spot in Mexico. A California native, Gobright, was featured in the 2017 film Safety Third. It's just kind of about the beauty and simplicity of moving up a rock wall all by yourself. With him at the time of the fall, his partner Aiden Jacobson, the pair descending from the mountain El Sendero Luminoso. Both climbers losing control while rappelling, Jacobson injuring his ankle. Gobright sent into a free fall. It's not just some sport hobby, it's, you know, it's my passion, it's my life. I want to look back on these years and be super proud. Now, friends and family in mourning over a life lost too soon. You know, it's funny. I, 
I am an extrovert, like I told you. I'm type A. You know, I am an accomplished woman, you know, with a great career, a great family. I think of myself as gutted together. And what I wish is that I'd just been a little more aware of the possible, I don't know, I can't even explain it. Like, I am so much wiser now and so much more vulnerable. Like, I look at that woman, you know, the woman before she lost Brad, and I was like, God, she was like such an idiot <laughs> in a certain way. And um, I'm glad that I have it now, I guess. I'm glad I have it now. I wish I didn't have to get it this way. But um, I mean, my empathy level is way higher. And yeah, I see the whole human spectrum in a way more profound and deep way. Hey, a quick heads up. Around minute 49, Pam briefly discusses Brad's accident, which could be triggering. Take care of yourselves while listening or skip past to minute 50. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is presented by Patagonia. Here's the show. All right. Well, my name is Pam Gobright, and um, I'm living here in Orange, California with my husband, Jim. We've been here for 25 years, and I love my story about Jim. So in my family, we prioritized education and the arts. Like I played classical music on the clarinet and the piano, and we went to the museums. My mom was a docent at the Smithsonian, and we never spent a minute outside. And then I came to California for the California dream, like you. And I actually came on a spring break and I met Jim in a disco. And he got my number and he took me out three times. And in those three times, they were like these incredible dates. Like he took me to Disneyland. He took me out on a sailboat and um, he took me hiking. And I had just never done any of those things. And then I went back to school at Miami U because that's where my stepdad was from. And we started writing each other like snail mail because that was the day. And he lived on the beach too. That was everything. He lived in Newport Beach right across from the pier. He had an apartment. So he would send me film, like developed film <laughs> pictures of the view from his apartment. And this is like while we're, we're writing. So we're kind of developing, I would say, this little romance over pen pal. Um, well, then, unbeknownst to me, his stepfather passed away. And it was very traumatizing. And I was in Ohio. He was here in California. And he stopped writing. And we lost touch. And so... I decided to move to California permanently, not because of him. Like at that point, I just thought, you know, you're young and you're moving on. You're like, oh, well, that guy. And anyway, so I was at the beach one day with my stepmom and I pointed to his apartment. I'm like, that's where that guy lived that I dated a couple times. And she goes, oh, you should totally leave him a note. And so I did. I left a note under his door. And so he called me. So we started going out a little bit. But here's the thing. It went on for a long time. Like, we were not serious at all. We were dating other people. And I'm going to say it was maybe eight or nine months like that. And there was this one incident where he invited me to a wedding. And I accepted. And then he didn't call. And so the morning of the wedding, I think, I called him. I was like, what's going on with the wedding? Well, he had screwed up and accidentally invited two girls to this wedding. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, uh, uh. And then, so he takes the other girl. I was so mad. He takes the other girl. I count up the phone. And again, I looked at my stepmom and I'm all, oh my God, I'm so done with this guy. Like he's so unreliable and, you know, we hardly see each other anyway. And well, so then after that, he calls me and he's totally apologetic and he's begging me to get, he's like, I am so embarrassed. And, you know, I don't think of you like that. And I really blah, blah, blah. And so finally, another couple of months goes by and he invites me to this picnic and it's his mom's company picnic. And I haven't met his mom before. So we go and he goes off to play softball and I'm sitting next to his mom and she looks at me and she goes, oh my God, I'm so happy to meet you. She goes, you're all Jimmy talks about and I've never seen him like this with a girl. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like seriously? Because that's not how he behaves. And it just changed my whole perspective. 
And I started to see him in this different way. And then I got really kind of aggressive and more assertive about dating him and making sure that we were a couple. And it took me a long time to tell it. But what I love about the story is like how he, I feel like there was these mini like moments where it could have just not happened. And then it did. And the first summer that we really were kind of a couple, we went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon to have a soup eye. Do you know have a soup eye? Okay, well, it was like way back in the day where there was nobody down there. It wasn't like it is now. So he took me to have a soup bite, and we climbed Half Dome, and we climbed Mount Whitney, like hiked. And every time we would go do something like that, I would blow an ankle or something and come back limping. I'd go to work, and people would be like, you've got to stop dating this guy. He's going to kill you, because I was such an indoor girl. But it was so exciting. I think that's what I fell in love with. Like he was just really full of adventure and I wasn't as familiar with the outdoors and it just opened up this great world. And he's always been like that. He's great, great spirit for, I mean, this bike ride we did, that was his baby. Like he planned it. He's the one that figured out how we were gonna get where we're going and making sure we had all our gear. And I mean, I joked around about it that all I have to do is show up and pedal. He takes care of everything else. So that's our little mini story. Long mini story. <laughs> Sometimes the most important story is the one behind the narrative in the mainstream. You can Google search pretty much anything about an athlete's career their ascents, their sponsors, bad TikTok reels, and family trees are pretty abstract, but stories add real depth. Brad Gobright was a climber who walked in the professional realm, but he was Brad Gobright, Pam and Jim's son first. We've been married 38 years, so nice long time. And we had the two kids, Brad and Jill. Oh, uh, gosh, this is so awesome. I love talking about my family. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, well, they were so different. So Brad came first and he didn't walk till he was 16 months old which is late, you know, it's like 12 months is the normal. He started crawling at seven months. So he crawled for months, like really well. I mean, we were joking that he was never going to walk because he could just go anywhere on his hands and knees. And I wonder sometimes like, was that how it started? You know, like he was always this full body tactile guy. And um, like, I don't want to say he was hard because he was really sweet. He never gave us any trouble. Like he wasn't belligerent all through high school. He never, you know, went off the rails or he never did drugs or anything like that. But he had a lot of trouble in school and he wasn't a good student. And I feel like he had a hard road. And then he struggled some socially too, like I think as a result of that. And he had this core group of friends, uh, Roger, Max, and Matt. And they were all straight A honor students. And they were friends in scouts, boy scouts. They all became Eagle Scouts. You know, Brad was like, never way was he ever going to do all those badges. So I, there was definitely like a lot of, you know, not keeping up and a lot of struggles with that for him. And then his sister was completely different. Like she excelled in school. She got into a gifted program in the fourth grade. You know, she went to UCLA. She's two and a half years younger than him. They actually never really seemed that far apart in age. Like, you know, girls are more mature anyway, I think. And it was definitely, I feel like that was hard, but he always had a great, a sense of excitement. He reminded me of his dad. Like he would get really excited about stuff and it was really sweet and made everything better because he couldn't wait to do things. And his dad just made everything happen too. So when he was, I think he was six, we went to Hawaii and he got to snorkel in Hanama Bay and he thought that it was just the greatest thing ever and he wanted to be like a marine biologist after that. And I mean, it was an obsession. And then Jim, this is my, one of my favorite Jim stories. Jim's went and rented scuba gear. We only had a jacuzzi in that house and him and Brad went in the jacuzzi like with full on scuba gear, like not just a snorkel. <laughs> and he's like pretending to be like a deep sea diver. And I mean, Brad just would embrace stuff like that. Yeah, he just, I can't even tell you all the stories because it's too much I know, but he's so fun. And um, he was just... I don't know. He loved the outdoors. And I think one of my best memories also is when he went climbing up Mount Whitney with his dad. 
And he was only eight. It was third grade and it was terrible. And he knew it. I mean, I think that was the other thing is up until the third grade, he was a little bit oblivious. But by the third grade, he was like, okay, I am not keeping up with everybody else and I can see it and it's a problem. And he was manifesting not bad behavior, but I don't know, sadness and anxiety, I would say. So Jim decided, okay, well, I'm going to climb Mount Whitney with Brad. That's what we should do. And I thought it was way too much for an eight-year-old. I mean, I'd done it a couple times. I knew how hard it was and the altitude and all that. I never saw little tiny kids up there. And I fought it all the way, but I lost. And they went and they did it. And Brad came home. Oh my gosh, Kathy. His lips were like totally sunburn, he's parched, his eyeballs were, you could tell he'd like burn his eyes. I mean, physically he looked terrible, but he was so excited and so happy that he had done it. And it defined him like, okay, well, I'm not a student, but I did this and this is gonna be my thing. And that was sort of the beginning, I feel like, of the propulsion of obsession <laughs> of how he was going to find his way in the world. And uh yeah, he, he was amazing in that way. And it kept us going too, because I remember other parents with struggling students would say, we can't motivate him. Like, we don't know what to do to get him to do his work. And with Brad, it was actually pretty easy because we could say, if you pass your math test, we'll take you to Joshua Tree. <laughs> And that would work, you know? He would work really hard to get it done because he wanted to go to Joshua Tree so bad. And I remember knowing, like, man, we're lucky he's got a thing that he cares so much about. You know, we were in it together. Pam loved being a mom. And it was more than just that. She loved being Brad and Jill's mom. It gave her purpose and direction and wasn't like a lot of other moms who struggled with career versus motherhood. Pam had figured out working from home way before the pandemic. She figured out a business model and started her own business. Sure, the internet was still dial-up, but she was able to make that pivot. And so she gave up a corporate job title when Brad started having trouble in school. Because despite popular belief, the great crux of Brad's life was actually the third grade. Yeah, I'm tangenting a little bit, but he he was great. He was great. I mean, I told you earlier, I love being a mom. I worried about him, of course, and I think I... I probably spent way too much time and energy trying to fix his problems. He was in a ton of different educational therapies over the years. He actually didn't read independently till the fifth grade. And they did this intensive reading therapy. It was like visualization. And that was such a hard summer. And he did start reading independently after that. But it was also a thing too where, you know, he didn't get to have a summer that year. And when I look back at all that now, you know, it's funny you go, well, maybe if I hadn't done that, he would have ever learned to read but also maybe you know I made him miserable and it, he would have figured it out anyway <laughs> you always second guess yourself I always think if I could just do anything different I just wouldn't worry so much you know I worried so much but he rolled with it pretty well you know in retrospect but gosh he hated school I mean he sort of had a mental block there because um, later he this is before he went pro and was able to sort of live on his terms economically but we were trying to get him into the SARS program at Yosemite, but that was going to require like a level of training and education that he would just be like, he wouldn't even try it. He'd just be like, no way, I'll fail. I'm never going to be able to do that. And I think that was you know, like trauma from his childhood of like everything I put him through. <laughs> but uh, he figured it out. But he was a very joyful kid and um, always loved adventure and the outdoors and um yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say we weren't super worried about him, but in retrospect, it seemed like destiny. You know, I mean, isn't that the case for anybody? Probably however your life turns out, you're like, oh, there was a reason for all those things that happened. I mean, I actually think that his difficulties is part of what made him so beloved later. Like, I, I mean, I think I'm right, because of course a mom has a different eye. But when I think about how Brad is perceived in the community, I see him perceived as somebody who's deeply relatable and kind of kind and flawed, but living his best life. And I think that he presented that authentically because he struggled. Like, it really was legit that he had these problems. And um, 
It made him a real person. Like he wasn't just some phenom, you know, that figured it all out early and was like some genius or, I mean, I don't know that he was even necessarily natural athlete. You know, he just, what he was, was incredibly obsessed incredibly obsessed and always he would be obsessed and he got that from his dad and that whole side of the family all those men are very focused people and uh when he started climbing and that was going to be his life it was literally all he wanted to do and all he could even talk about He graduated from high school and he spent a year at home. He went to community college, but gosh, he was miserable. Like, I'm going to say, okay, it was all good, but there were two really bad years. One was third grade and the other was the year after he graduated from high school because his friends all went off to college. Like I said, he had all these brainy friends. He was miserable. He made us miserable. He was not communicative. He was not particularly pleasant. And I told him, I'm like, I, we've had it with you. You need to get out of here for the summer. Let's go apply for a job in Yosemite. And so I actually helped him with the application. You know, I told him what to say because <laughs> you have to do a little bio or whatever. So he, he got the job and he went and uh, he pretty much never came home. Like the idea was he was going to go for the summer and come back and finish school. Uh, but he ended up not coming back to like, I don't know, I think it was like November when it finally got too cold in Yosemite. And then he farted around like he signed up for classes, but then he was dropping them. And then we could see, well, you're not really going to school. So now it's like January, February. And then I'm like, okay, well, you can't stay here if you don't go to school. And also you didn't really have a job. I had like a job at recreation, but it was, you know, I don't know what, eight hours a week or some dumb amount making eight bucks an hour, like definitely not taking care of himself. And so that kind of puttered around for another couple of months. And then finally, I think this is like a hilarious story. Like he had no concept of money and what it cost to even do anything, which ultimately we were both wrong because I thought it took a lot more to live than it actually took. And he thought it took a lot less, but we kicked him out. We actually physically kicked him out. And when we did it, I was like, I just can't let you rot here. Like, you're not happy. We're not happy. I I don't know what you're going to do, but it's going to be a lot better if you're not doing it here. I can just tell. You got to figure out. Your problem is you don't have any money. And he goes, I don't need money. And I started laughing. I'm like, Brad, everybody needs money. So he leaves. He goes to Rock Creation. He sleeps in his car for like two weeks, like takes a shower in the gym. And I, I don't know what he was doing, but he was out of the house for two weeks. And then he called me up and he said, okay, well, it turns out it's a little bit hard to find a job when you're homeless. <laughs> and can I please just come home? And so we let him come home. And then he did. He ended up getting a job at the golf course, bussing tables. And then he went right back to Yosemite because he was like the season was starting again. And after that, he figured it out. He wouldn't come home. He would come home to visit for a week or two, but he didn't really rely on us. And you know what? We never gave him a dime. I mean, I'm super proud of that. We never helped him financially. He just, I thought he would have to get a real job, but he just learned to live on next to nothing. Like when he was in Colorado, you met him there, right? He was working at the St. Julian and all through these really crazy years, like I'm gonna say between 20 and 25, the kid was off the grid. Like he was young enough that his body could take it and he wasn't taking good care of himself and he just wanted to climb, but he would check in with me super rare. I was like his, you know, steady person. And so he would run his financial situation by me and he'd be like, okay, all right, I have $3,000. And I'd be good. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the road. I'd be like, how long will that last? Like for me, that'd be, you know, maybe two months you know and he's like I think I can make it last till next winter and he would he would literally live on that three thousand dollars for like seven or eight months and then he went back and he did that for a couple of years and I mean I don't even know how he ate how he put gas in his car I mean there was a whole thing about paying his car insurance we had a big moment with a dental problem that he had that he wasn't going to take care of And I was super mad because I worked with homeless people and I know what happens when you don't have your teeth, but he did it. It was like 600 bucks and he paid for it because I wrote him so hard about it. And um, yeah, he he just made it work on next to nothing. And it was very impressive, honestly. I mean, I remember thinking maybe I did not have all the answers, even though I'm a lot older than he is. 
You know, one of my good friends said, you know, at the end of the day, Brad was like the most famous person to come out of his class. Like, he's like the biggest deal in the whole class. And I was like, yeah, but man, who would have thought? Like, nobody would have thought. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're just so proud of him. I mean, really, I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of how he figured it out for himself. It could have been anything, you know, it doesn't matter really what he did. It's just the fact that he, with a lot of, you know, what you might call headwinds or obstacles, that he navigated a path for himself without our help. You know, and I think, yeah, he lived his best life. And my niece said this right after he died, she said, Aunt Pam, a lot of people go 60 years and they don't cram with bread, crammed into 30. You know, he made an impact on the world. He woke up almost every day and did exactly what he wanted to do. And I mean, most of us only get to do that a couple of days a week, right? <laughs> Our whole lives. And uh, I'm glad he got to have that because it was short. And so I'm glad it was good. I do feel like it was good. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. Patagonia introduces Clean Climbing, a philosophy that challenges us to ask ourselves, what constitutes success? Yvonne Chouinard and Tom Frost jump-started this ethic to inspire a new generation of climbers and mountaineers and help restore our commitments, style over summit, and to the planet we're working to save. From the commercial introduction of Chalks in 1972 to Cam's in 1978, Clean Climbing meant that we could finally climb free. This was the beginning of modern climbing. Go deeper and check out the 2022 reflection on the state of clean climbing. Bring back clean climbing by Mei Lee Hung on the Patagonia website. Visit patagonia.com slash stories for more. I'm not going to say we weren't supportive because, well, actually, I would say Jim was not supportive. He definitely thought it was a bad idea. He thought it was dangerous, which it was. Like Jim would say, how is he ever going to get a wife and have a family? Like, you've got to have a job. No girl's going to want to go out with him. And But I was more like, oh, he'll figure it out. We got to have faith, you know, just let him be. Not that I wasn't worrying on the inside, but I just try to trust. I try to trust. And uh, so I think I, I was like that, but I did not understand what he was doing. I didn't understand why he would want to live like that. Um, like there was this time when he was in Moab and I mean, he would get lost. I was, I think I was scared. I think I was nervous for his safety, not his safety, his mental health. Like I worried that he was isolated and alone. He would do this thing where he would go off like I remember he went into the minarets and did some, you know, 11 peak thing or whatever. And he was in there for five or six days, like totally by himself. And I would think, oh my God, you know, something happens to him in there. There's no one there. Or also like, isn't he lonely? And, um, you know, maybe, maybe your mom and dad think some of this about you. Like it's hard for people that stay in one place to understand a nomad lifestyle. Like how do you forge relationships? How do you get a foundation? How do you create people in your life that are going to be there when you're old. Those are the kind of things I worried about. And slowly over time, and I told you how I kind of made it a habit to go visit him a lot. And it was part of that was an effort to kind of understand and immerse myself in his world. And 
over time, I began to see that he had these relationships and that he had this community. And social media helped, Facebook helped. And I mean, after his Safety Third movie came out and his Instagram thing skyrocketed, you know, I'm savvy enough to know. And so I felt better about it, not because he was good at climbing, but because I felt like he had people that would take care of him in a pinch. And, um, you know, he had a girlfriend and she was really wonderful to him. So he didn't date at all through high school, early 20s. And then he meets this girl and, and I think they were madly in love. I mean, I spent enough, a little bit of time with the two of them together, not a ton, but when I go visit him and she, God bless her, she stayed with him when he went to Squamish and they went to Vegas together. And so I felt like they were a team and I felt like she was looking after him. I adored her and, um, and that made me feel better. So I was like, I think my whole thing with him, it was like, all from a mom perspective. Like I'm talking about his career, but not really to me. It was like, is he safe? Is he loved? Is he happy? You know, is he useful? I mean, I used to have those conversations with him. Like, what's your purpose? Like one time I remember when he's pretty young, he's like, I don't know what, what, how this is all going to work out for me. And I was like, Brad, most people find purpose in living for something outside themselves. Like it felt a little selfish, right? A little self-absorbed. And, you know, and I said, like, for me, it was you kids, like that you guys are the light of my life, but I'm not saying that's going to be for you, but like, what's your point here? And, um, it took me a while, but I started to see it like, oh, People look up to him now. I could see that. Like, oh, Pam, he was on this path. He was figuring it out. He was, you know, making mistakes and having hiccups and all that. But it was ultimately leading him to this place of purpose and safe, not obviously not physical safety, but emotional safety and connection. And um, I felt that. I saw that happening. And I also saw him become more thoughtful and more of a homebody, not a homebody, but he would come home more and he would engage more with the family. And he dated this other girl that I've become quite close to. And she's not even a climber. She's like a medical doctor. And I mean, he just had these like cool, quirky people in his life. And so I started to feel more comfortable for sure. And I started to understand it. I mean, I think I spent enough time with him too. I mean, one of the great um, kind of sadnesses for me is kind of losing that connection to the climbing community because I don't climb, but it was just so fun for me to go be with him for a day or two all the time and just be around all those guys. And like, I remember sitting in the meadow with Tom, watching climbers on El Cap and with Brad and all the guys would come around and, you know, you know, that core crew or whatever, and they'd be telling stories. And I got to feel like a part of that. And then later I'd see their social medias and I'd know who they were and I'd talk to Brad about what they were doing. And um, yeah, it just, it's really sad that I don't know how to hold on to that quite connection. I'm trying to think about that and figure it out. But we are going to the facelift in September. And it's funny, I told Sam as Brad's friend and she met him in Yosemite and I was saying to her, I, we went last July as a family and it just, I felt like that same feeling of just no longer belonging. That's what it is. It's a feeling of not belonging. And um, I, we're going to go back, but I'm nervous. Like I'm nervous. It's not going to feel good. And Sam said, the first time I went back after Brad died, I went by myself and I just went to all of our places and I just cried and just did what I needed to do. And I thought, oh, that's probably really wise. Like I'm trying really hard to like, how do I connect? How do I connect? But maybe I just need to be and not be with a bunch of people. So anyway, I'm working through that, how to do it. But uh, it's just so, so horrible that not belonging feeling. So yeah, I'm thinking about going to Yosemite by myself or just with Jim and I'm recognizing that that will be a travel into the depth of the pain and doing it alone will make it more profound and I will feel it and it's probably something I need to do. Like I'm not afraid of the dark place. I'm not... I know people that are and don't want to go there, but yeah, it's like right there, man. I can't ignore it.
We're pretty conditioned to push our emotions down inside and pretend it's all great. And when asked how are you while grieving, whether it's a social nicety or it comes from genuine caring, we're not always in a space to bore the occasionally compartmentalized yet always complicated roller coaster of our ever-changing emotions. So that's been something I've been thinking about lately. Like, how can I be more intentional with not just what questions I'm asking, but also how I ask them? And sometimes it's as simple as skipping a platitude and just letting people know you aren't going anywhere. Most of us lie somewhere in between the amazing, terrible grief support continuum. And it's important to remember that good people give bad support every day. The hard part is that grieving people don't always have the bandwidth to think about how they want to be supported. And the only advice we have is don't let a bunch of time pass by to the point of a weird and awkward situation. Because life and death are already weird enough. I do love it when people ask, like, you know, we went through the pandemic and there were people I didn't see for two or three years. And um, I went home, I saw my brother-in-law and, you know, it's been a couple of years. We're not talking about Brad, we're having a good time. And he just turned to me and he's like, so if you don't want to talk about it, it's okay, but how are you doing? And I just appreciated that so much in that moment. I, I said, I'm just really thank you for asking me because... I just want to, I want to be able to talk about it. And so I've definitely had the experience of feeling like I want to scream, you know, like, don't these people realize what's happened to me? Like, why are they not asking how I am? I've had that. A part of it, part of it is like, you don't want to burden them, right? But also part of it is like, how much energy can I give this space? Because I take a lot of energy. It's, t- it's energy out of me too, right? So yeah, I guess I just would say give people space if they want to talk about it. But some people probably don't want to talk about it. Like I know we're all different. I also... Um, I love hearing stories about Brad that I don't know. Like, I love that so much. And so I had a sweet thing happen where one of Brad's very best friends, Matt, from Scouts and all that, and he came in for the funeral and he asked if he could just come over for a visit. And he grew up just down the street over here. Him and Brad met in the third grade. And he came over and he said, I just want to tell you what it was like for me growing up next to your family. And he just shared with me, like, what it felt like to be friends with Brad and to be in our home as a kid. And he said, I used just sit there and wait for your van to like come around the corner and then as soon as I saw it I'd ask my mom if I could go to Brad's house it was so sweet right like I love that I love that it made me feel so like there was value in my history and uh and Brad's history so those are things I appreciate I'd say so we were in Sedona Arizona doing a photo and film shoot for Grimichi with Brad Gobright, Cruz Padilla, and Ben Hanna. And we had a hotel room for two nights. And so most of the crew had been camping in Moab for a few days doing other film stuff. And then when they came to Sedona, the chance to have a shower and a a nice dry place to sleep was pretty good. So everyone's kind of showering and hanging out. And Cruz's dad had put on a football game. And as people are taking turns showering, we're about to go out to dinner and do stuff. Brad is sitting in front of the TV, like leaning forward off the couch, super absorbed into the football game. And I can't remember who asked him, Brad, do you like football? And his immediate response was, yeah. I mean, I think if I understood what was happening, I'd like it better. But yeah, I like it. And it just highlighted to me how Brad's world was Brad's world. And if it wasn't climbing related or something he cared about, it was just a completely foreign thing. He wasn't one of those people that did a lot of little things. Whatever he did, full bore 100% and everything else was not even a distraction. It just didn't exist. Um, That's one of my (laughs) funnier memories of Brad. That was actually one week before they went to Mexico and he passed away. Talk to you later, Kathy. He passed me when we bailed off the nose one day with barely anything on his rack, going really fast and bringing practically no water. One morning I was sitting in the cafe eating someone's breakfast that they neglected to finish. And Brad walked over with some leftover pancakes. He told me that he tried to solo the nose this morning, but got scared and wrapped off some fixed lines after the first four pitches. Told him I always wanted to do the nose. 
maybe someday do the nose in a day. He said he'd be psyched to head up with me for a practice run. I said, sure, I knew how to do more. So I biked back to camp four, got everything I could. We scrambled up to the base of the first pitch. We pretty much got to the top of the nose in probably six hours, maybe less. It was insane, <laughs> absolutely insane. What an introduction to speed climbing in Yosemite. Um, Brad will be missed. I don't really remember the first time I met Brad specifically. I think I met him in Squamish, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so. But I, he kind of represented the the next generation of kids coming up. You know, the, the guy that you hear about in the campground or something. We're like, oh, Brad just did this crazy thing. And one of the most characteristic Brad memories that I have is picking him up to go climb El Cap. And I, I don't remember which route we were climbing. I think we were maybe just going up the nose or something because we both sort of worked on and off with potentially freeing the nose in a day. And so I think we were just going to climb the nose. And I picked him up at maybe 4 in the morning or 3.30, like something super early so we could get started before the sun and he was camping illegally in the boulder so he's just you know sleeping in the forest and i just met him at the side of the road at 3 30 or 4 in the morning and he's just standing there in the dark with his bag on ready to go you know and it's and it's pretty cold like in the valley that time of year you know that time of morning it's it's like cold out and brad's just you know like eating a muffin hanging out on the side of the road ready to climb I was like, this is so hardcore. You know, it's like that he just woke up in his sleeping bag in the boulders and it was like, okay, time to go climbing and just made it happen. He like never complained. He was always on time. You know, he's just easy in a way. He's like, yeah, cool. You know, I'll be there. And then he'd be there. He'd be like, sweet, that's Brad. One of the reoccurring themes throughout all my different climbing experiences with Brad was just how relatively relaxed they were. We would hike in, we'd have a nice time chatting, we would climb something. And most of the things that I remember climbing with Brad were the hardest routes in the area. You know, they were free climbing all cap in a day. They were trad climbing the hardest multi-pitches in Red Rock. But mostly I just remember a casual day of hanging out with my friend. And so, you know, it never felt that extreme when you go out with Brad. And I don't know, it's like, it's interesting because now when I think of the stories, I'm like, oh, it was a nice day chatting with Brad. And you're like, well, we did do the second ascent of one of the hardest trad routes in Red Rock. But that felt kind of incidental to the fact that, you know, we had a nice chat on the way in. You know, like I had this really nice day once with Brad where uh, I think the weather was bad or something, and we went to this area called the Gun Club, which is like a really scrappy limestone crag outside of Las Vegas. It's like where you go when the weather's bad. And there was nobody there, and we were climbing on one side of the canyon, and we climbed a couple of the harder routes, and then all that remained on the wall were a bunch of slightly easier routes. And the two of us just decided to put the rope away and just scramble the whole rest of the wall so we could sort of tick the whole crag in a day, like do every route on this one side. And it was super fun because there aren't that many partners who you can free solo with at that level. And so, I mean, I just remember the two of us climbing these routes side by side, kind of like one person goes up, the other person's going down the next route, and we just kind of worked our way across the whole rest of the wall, going up and down each route. And, but, you know, chit-chatting the whole time. It's kind of like going for a jog and holding a conversation while you're jogging with your buddy. And I was like, what a fun day, and there are just not that many people who you can do something like that with. And so Brad was such a hero to so many people in the climbing community, and he was such an inspiration to so many people in climbing that I think that, that his death really touched a lot of people. And I think that you kind of see that in the way the climbing community comes together and celebrated him, helped support his family, helped try to you know remember him and his stories. And I hate to say his legacy, but you know I mean, but remember the things that were great about him and the things that he was great at. I don't know. It's I just think that he had a big impact on the sport. And so it's nice to see the climbing community remember and celebrate that. I think about, too, I've had a lot of people approach me about safety and, you know, ask me about that because I feel Brad was known for, you know, maybe being reckless and not being the safest person out there. And um, I think that's a thing that I didn't really perceive it like, I remember him telling me, first of all, when he was free soloing, I didn't find out about it till it was, you know, like that movie was already made, I think, by the time I found out that he was doing that. And he told me this thing. He said, Mom, I've practiced it so much. And, you know, I play the piano. And he's like, it's like muscle memory. And I understand what that is because I do music. And I know, like, when I'm playing music, I don't even know what my fingers are doing. They just do it. And that made it relatable to me that when he's climbing, he's got this muscle memory. And he just kind of would assure me that he had it. So I believed him. So later, you know, because it was a safety accident, people said, you know, what do you feel about safety? And I mean, I think everyone should be safe, of course. And I guess what I would say to people that aren't safe is you have no idea what your loss is going to do to the people that love you. You have no idea. Um, 
but since we're talking about it, because this is a thing people have asked me about, is like the manner of his death, you know, the the horribleness of the physicality of it and what that is like for me. And I've talked to other grieving people who who had loved ones die in accidents or whatever, and it was like they were horrified about what the last moments were like. You know, and again, maybe this is my mom's lens. I do think that there's a veil of like, denial protection over me but I just believe that Brad was trying to save himself to the last second I just know him and I just know that however long that took that fall he was looking for something to grab looking for where his rope was until it was over that was all that was on his mind and I think that's helped me not imagine you know this horrible painful fall and death that's how I view it I I went to the place I saw where it happened and um you know, it doesn't look like a clean fall to me. It looks like a bumpy, rocky place. And I don't know, just giving you some of my coping mechanisms. But I feel like Brad's confidence and fearlessness, I don't know if it was fearlessness, but whatever he had, it's the reason why he was so good. And it was a reason why he was able to achieve what he was supposed to achieve. Carefulness can be also fear, right? And I'm not sure where that definition changes or gets messy, but Up until the moment of his death, I would not have changed anything for him. He was doing what he thought was right for him. And the way he climbed and the chances he took, he had them worked out in his mind. I don't think he took it super lightly. You know, when he free soloed um, uh, Hairstyles and Attitudes, am I getting it right? You know, he told me he did that like 60 times you know, before he ever even did it without a rope. So I don't think he was just reckless. So I, yeah, I I wanted to talk about that. And I do want people to be careful, but I also don't want people to go around being scared. I don't know what that balance is, but I don't want people to look at Brad and think, well, he was careless. Because I don't know that that's fair or true. And I know I didn't see everything that was happening. I know that. But I hope everybody is as safe as they can be maybe just value your life and make sure you know what you're doing but don't not do it if you're scared you're not going to be able to do it he talked about that I don't know that much about it I know I'm probably talking out of my wheelhouse here like the whole secret of even being able to do it all is to not let that fear in I must not fear and fear is the mind killer and fear is the little death that brings total obliteration I will face my fear I'm permitted to pass over me In a genuine way, I can say that Dune has vastly improved my life. It's not wrong to experience fear, but we have to acknowledge it for what it is. Fear's meant to make us pause and evaluate our circumstances because something something evolution. So while it may not be pleasant, it's still an emotion that helps drive human evolution and survival. It's a biological condition that keeps us safe. And in the right doses, it does have benefits. But fear can also trigger a strong physical reaction. Thanks, amygdala. And there's no place for adrenaline when you're doing something as risky as free soloing, which many soloists understand, as did Brad. The tricky part is how to strike a balance. We can't not acknowledge it, but we also can't let this complex human emotion dictate our entire lives. And Jill, our daughter, has told us that she is more fearful now. And before we were, like I said, we're this, you know, adventurous family and we do all these amazing things. And, you know, and by the way, like I'm not talking a lot about her in this interview, but she's incredible in her own right. And, you know, she's just got promoted to the main winemaker at Joel Gott Wines and she is killing it. And before that, she's traveled the whole world like by herself and had so many great adventures when she was really young. But she's a little bit fearful now. And she said, for example, when we were on the bike ride, which we've been on many bike rides and she'd never thought twice about it. And when we came home early, she said, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm so relieved you're home. I was terrified every day. And she goes, I don't know why I'm like that now, but I just am scared that something's going to happen to one of us. And um, 
And that bums me out, you know, like she's lost her innocence in that sense. And her and her boyfriend, they went to Germany and they in the wintertime and they went on this luge thing that was super fast. And she said that Matt, her boyfriend, he went tearing down and loved it. And she, it's normally something she would love to do. And she hopped on it and she went down and she goes, I ended up bailing on purpose. Like it was going so fast. And I thought, oh my God, if something happens to me. And so she told me that and I, I was like, yeah, if something happens to you, <laughs> I don't know, honey, but you can't live like that. We're all have it. It's like we have PTSD or whatever. And uh, I assume that will work its way through our systems over time and we'll see. But um, it's funny. these are the kind of thing, you know, you ask like if something's prepared. There were some things that I read that was like, oh yeah, this is familiar. But then there were other things like this. I wasn't ready for the feeling Like, I wasn't really ready. I told you earlier about the loss of identity. And I mean, that was like a very early thing that I thought, this is such a selfish thought. We have gone from being this fun, adventurous, amazing, in my opinion, family with these incredible kids to this tragic family. And we will always be children of tragedy now. And for me, it wasn't so much about what, how other perceived me, it was how I perceived myself. I am no longer bulletproof. You know, I am carrying these scars around with me now that I am not gonna be able to shed. I, you know, I have a somewhat difficult childhood and I talked to you earlier about how you develop these like coping mechanisms when you've had trauma. And really, I mean, like my therapist said, coping mechanisms are good things. They help us, you know, navigate the world and do better. And so mine, one of mine, I think, is like I just decided that I was going to just make this amazing life and I wasn't going to let anything get me down. And I'm like type A and I'm going to make it happen and nothing can stop it. And that's just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, stuff does happen no matter how hard you work and no matter how good you try to do. So... Yeah, I lost my bulletproof self, which wasn't ever really there. I lost my perception of it, I guess. People think that grief slowly gets smaller with time, but what really happens is that we grow around it. In reality, it stays the same. Dr. Lois Tonkin, who we highly recommend checking out, created a model that challenges the idea that time heals all wounds. And there are, of course, so many different versions of grief, but if you've experienced it, then you know that time doesn't necessarily make it disappear. There are a lot of complicated theories and models, and this one captures a simple but relatable feeling that resonates with many. And like all grief theories, it works for some and not for others. You can take what's useful and leave the rest. In Tonkin's model, grief represents a dark circle that pretty much feels like your life has been obliterated. The circle doesn't change in size, but what happens is, you start building new experiences around it, like Pam and like myself, and maybe some of you. You'll find moments of joy and, of course, deep sorrow. But that initial inner circle is no longer most of your life because you grow around your grief and you learn how to carry it with you. I think part of what's happening is also aging. And in a way, there's grieving over that. And I mean, I'm pretty healthy and I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I told you I just did this pretty incredible thing on a bike at 61 years old. It's, you know, I'm so grateful to the creator for giving me a healthy body that can do that. And also, I'm well aware that I need to take care of myself physically and emotionally to be able to continue to have physical adventures that I'm used to. But but I've wrapped a lot of my post-childbearing life around kind of these big things that might not be accessible to me in a few years as I age. And so there's like a sense of loss around that. Like, who are we going to be when we're not the great adventurers? We're not like those people that sat on the couch and therefore when it's time to sit on the couch, we're used to it. <laughs> like, we are not sit-on-the-couch people. And uh, that terrifies me. And I think it is not stopping and just being in it for the long haul for just, I don't know, the setbacks. I mean, they're not easy for me. And I told you about the big setback I had after the ride. That was really difficult for me to accept that I was that weak this late in. 
But looking back, I think, Pam, you need to love your sad little lonely self. You can't get so aggravated with her. So that's resilience to me, maybe, is just trying to give yourself a break and keep breathing. It's not like, oh, I'm so tough, I'm going to go back and be who I was. Or I mean, I know physically for athletes that can be a definition, but for people grieving, it's like getting out of bed or not. <laughs> I mean, if you're not getting out of bed, someday you'll get out of bed, right? And, you know, I've struggled with insomnia ever since my menopause, and it was really bad for a while, and it's better now. And I'll tell you why. Because I just stopped worrying about it. I just gave up. I just like, you know what, Pam? You're just always going to be sleepy and feel a little shitty every day because you can't sleep. And then my doctor told me, Pam, when you get in bed, just tell yourself, good job for giving your body a rest. You're still resting your body even if you're not sleeping. Just rest. And so I did that. I'd be like, okay, Pam, you're in bed. You're not sleeping, but you are in bed. And and it's like, guess what? I, I started sleeping better. I started sleeping better when I stopped being so hard on myself. Pam stopped being so hard on herself. And that's not to say that she won't have hard days. But the pendulum swings both ways. And she's found a lot of joy in life, too. On her birthday, Pam wrote, I hope Jim, Jill, and I go to Yosemite this year and hike to the base of El Cap and remember Brad in all of his glory up there. I hope we can release a part of his spirit that lies in our hearts to that gorgeous mountain that inspired him so and feel just a fraction of his joy. I hope we see climbers there doing their thing and I hope we feel excited for them and not just sad. Climbers, if they've been at it for a while, understand sudden loss and death. They tread the ground and touch the rock differently because of this knowledge, remembering their losses. They are aware. I hope we see friends of Brad and talk about their new achievements, not just our loss. I hope the virus is squelched and there's joy and celebration. I hope I cry less when I remember Brad. I hope I laugh more. I hope that God brings peace to me and all of you. The Gobright family has plans to return to Yosemite and if you're in the valley and you see her, say hi. We're with you, Pam. And Brad remains with all of us. Yeah, I think that really, you know, I was relatively young, especially for this day and age. Like I had Brad when I was 28 and it was the first time I really understood what it meant to love something more than myself. I mean, it's been said before, like you throw yourself in front of a bus and that happened for me right away. And I think it just made me better and gave me purpose and it was fun you know they were just gorgeous little kids and uh I mean I know every parent says this but seriously we'd walk around town and people would stop us in the street (laughs) I'm just bragging here but they were cute kids and uh like Jill had this halo of curls as a toddler and um and Brad had these bright eyes and everything was like wow and so exciting and I don't know just it was just a great great thing and um and I I think love is such an interesting or I don't know important subject that it's the foundation of everything and that one thing about a long life with some tragedy in it is my understanding of the nature of love has expanded with my losses like I understand now that it transcends death and I'm not sure I really got that on a profound level Like, I still have a relationship with Brad, and I have to work harder at it, right, in a way, because it's more nebulous, and it's it's not physical, and it's not of this world, which is where I'm comfortable and what I'm used to and what I know. So it's forcing me to go big with the concept of what love is and what's possible. And the first time I really started to understand it was in the weeks and months following Brad's loss. Because, you know, we were so blessed in a sense that he was so loved, that all that love came at us, you know, from all around the world. 
I mean, we had, I don't know, four or 500 people at his funeral and all the climbers were there. Uh, my pastor knocked it out of the park. I mean, everybody was so happy to be able to be a part of it. Um, and just the whole world came to support us and tell us that they loved us and they loved Brad. And uh, I don't want to cry in the podcast, but I just, it's so powerful. It was really, really powerful. And it helped me transcend the physicality of my grief a bit to understand. It's like, I see it as the face of God, all that love and the universe and human experience of loss and life, I think I see that in others. Like I recognize other people's processes now in a way that I didn't before. And um, I think the reading helped, but really it's the people. Like I met Michael Kennedy, you know, Hayden's father, who's further along than me. And I got to talk to him and, you know, he confirmed that. You don't think it's possible, but life goes on and you figure it out. And where you're at right now is where you need to be. And you can't get, I'll tell you one big thing that's so true. You can't rush it. There's no getting over it. <laughs> you just get through it. And uh, yeah, I mean, people have said little nuggets of wisdom, like little things like that just sort of stuck with me. Yeah, the climbing community is so incredible. It's so diverse and it's really cool how people have really helped me process this and think about it and people all different ages too, you know, not just like you think, oh, old wise people that have been through it, but no, sometimes, you know, really young people say stuff to me and I'm like, I never thought of that. And it stays with you. You know, you know how that is? Like there's somebody will say something and you can't get it out of your head. What is that? Why does that happen? You know, it's amazing, impressive. And I mean, I hope it's okay to use real names, but I met this other guy named Wayne Willoughby. Oh my gosh, he's like an adaptive climber. He's 70 or something like that. He had polio as a kid. And he has sent me long, caring messages about grief and about love and about human will. And like, this is a guy who's been through it. And he's so profound. And I, I felt like that about Michael Kennedy too. Like, this is a guy that's been through it. And it gives me hope and I want to maybe be like that for somebody else I want to be able to do that you know maybe that's probably why I'm sitting here talking I mean it helps me to talk about it but I also just want to not turn away from people's pain I want to be present for it Alex, just want you to know that I still think of Brad often. Actually, because I shared so many experiences with him climbing in Red Rock, and, and I basically live in, in Red Rock now, I think of him all the time, and I think about the, the experiences we shared, and I think, you know, things that you would have enjoyed, and I don't know, just want you to know that, that uh, he's still, still with us all the time here. listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia, not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. 